Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Anthony. Next, we're going to talk about the salesman uh, panels that uh, Tops, primarily Tops and Bowman, there have been some other things like that, but the ones that really ca caught my eye and have caught Anthony's uh, eye and perhaps heart are these uh, pretty rare salesman panels from the 50s and, and 60s. And uh, so, again, thank you, Tops, for being a sponsor of this show and for, for uh, doing that. I don't know why you felt nece necessary to put out salesman panels when it seemed like every kid in my neighborhood was uh, lined up at the store to get the, the, the cards when they first came out. But also Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, which I know has handled a bunch of these. Huggins and Scott as well. They have handled these uh, salesman panel uh, cards. The baseball mainly, I think, and uh, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, and then ComC.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Education. And my role at Beckett in doing the price guides, we always got a lot of questions and people say, I've got this strange card and it's a wrong back or something. <laughs> and it turned out in many cases, it'd be, it'd be a intentionally wrong back in one of these uh, salesman uh, panel cards that have been cut. So especially 59s, it seemed like, Anthony. Anyway, Anthony, welcome to the show, and give us a little preamble of your hobby uh, origin and, and why you've gravitated to uh, what is a pretty tough quest to try to get to, to try to get these uh, salesman panel cards. So welcome, Anthony, and uh, tell us some of your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I started out collecting in about 1970, buying packs as a kid of nine years old. And by 1972, a couple of friends and I were actively buying and trading through the mail. Uh, a new magazine called SED had just come out. We were had, had a subscription to Trader Speaks. And we would put an ad in there offering up like 50 1971 tops in exchange for a T206 or a T205. And we thought we would just get a couple and we got flooded. So much so that we had to go around the neighborhood knocking on doors. So oh, it was- me. Yeah. me. Oh, and, why, why didn't I think of that? I was well, there at the time. This is brilliant, Anthony. Wow. We, we did that, the three of us, and we ended up getting in over our heads. So we had to go knock on doors trying to buy collections from garages. And by about 74, I had amassed 300 T206s and maybe 100 T205s. So my two friends and I started another tack is that we would place an enormous amount of lowball bids on auctions and we would pool our money to help each other. My friend Jason ended up getting a 52 Bowman set complete for $45 when he was going for about 150 uh, I got an uncut sheet of 49 Bowman for $10. We would just lowball. And if we get in over our heads, we pool our money and pay, take a few months off while we paid back the other guy. And that's how it went until about 76 when cameras and surfboards and girls and cars took over my life. And I set up, I sold a few cards and, and a few years later at the first national took out a table and sold off the collection. And that was it. Ooh. And then went on to life and career and family. And in 1999, I decided to check out eBay and I thought, Maybe I'll just get the 71 set and then the 70 set and then the 54 set and then this and that. And it's that slippery slope with the sort of mental damage that we all have as collectors and the obsession. And so it led to not just be collecting the set, but collecting all things attached to that set. So I have a pack for every single set, an unopened pack. I have an empty wax box. I used to have, I've downsized a little bit, but I used to have at least one sheet or uncut sheet or panel from every set. And along with that came the salesman samples. Okay. I'm a commercial advertising photographer, and I've always been drawn to graphics and advertising. It's one of the things I really like about having collecting the wax packs is seeing the graphics that sold the cards and not just the cards. I was drawn to the salesman samples, and I started collecting them about 2009. And as it stands now, I'm missing one for the whole run. 
but I really enjoy them a lot. They're a little bit different. They're a little more esoteric and a little more niche than, than most collectors go for. But I think that's the thing that makes it interesting is everybody collects different things and is drawn to different ways of collecting. But you're okay. So in your profession though, you, you're how no frills. I've always thought in advertising and marketing and promotion, it's important to show the product, <laughs> but this advertising piece, this promotional salesman panel piece is basically, that's all it is. It's a little bit of a, verbiage on the back on some of the early ones but basically it's not better than the product it just is the product it is the product yeah and so what i i guess again i think those were simpler days back in the 50s and 60s they, they there's no hyperbole these aren't better than the product it, this is the product and uh, but why do you think tops and bowman thought that was necessary I mean, again when you have tops versus bowman then you think okay maybe they need to convince the the, the candy store the five and dime the whatever to that they need to get their cards. But have you? What, what's your theory on that? I think they're competing for shelf space, a lot like some of my clients do. They're competing for shelf space and they're jockeying for favor with the retailers in giving up that space and trying to show them that they are going to back their product with a proper advertising campaign in order to drive sales to the retailer. But, but we would think now, if we impose our 2020 thinking on this, is that when the TOPS representative came in, well, it, whether it was through the mail, some of them were through the mail and some of them probably they said here to, did they, do you think that the, the candy guy thought this was a, a token of value? Because I'm not sure they did. No, I'm, I can't really say. Otherwise they would have saved them. Pardon me? Otherwise they would have saved them more. There'd be more yeah. of them out there. Don't you think? Yeah, that's certainly true. And it's, they're pretty, some of them are especially scarce certain years, but it goes back even further. 1939, the yeah. play ball company launched their set and they overprinted, they stamped on the back sample cards on a lot of their cards yeah. and gave those out to kids and retailers. And I think it's just trying to drive demand. I think that's it, it, showing it, the product. That's probably the first representation of a, of a sampling card that overstamp on the 39 play balls. My dad had a few of those. So when I got my dad's collection back in 1950, Christmas of 59, I turned some of them over and they had this, this whatever red stamp on there. And I thought, gee, that's messed up. Only a few of them had it. But, and then you skip ahead to 52 or probably 52 or so. So which years do you think are the toughest? Is it, it's, it's not necessarily the older, the better. It's not necessarily. It's a lot like unopened packs. It's a matter of who saved what and where you come up with a big stash of them. Recently, a giant stash of 66 tops salesman samples has surfaced. And at the same time, a, a fairly decent sized supply of 54 tops with Duke Snyder on it has surfaced. And that drives the price down. It was pretty similar with unopened packs. 64 stand-up unopened packs were tough. And then all of a sudden, a box of them appeared, and that drove the price down and enabled a lot more people to start collecting those. So I think as far as the salesman samples goes, I'm still looking for 53 tops. I've only seen one in 20 years. A friend of mine picked it up, and I've never seen one since. So I've been looking for that. That's the last one I need. That one is tough. 52 tops is certainly pretty tough, and it's in high demand. 56 tops is such a classic set. And I'm on a couple of Facebook groups just dedicated to just 56 tops. I think it's got its own sort of cult. And, and I think to go along with that, the salesman sample is very difficult. The pack is virtually impossible, but the salesman sample is extremely difficult. But to the, uh, there's a superstar orientation on some of these. It's not just the fact that it's, it, and, and the choice of players that tops and Bowman used is curious at best. Uh, well, I, those panels that have a really good, the Jackie Robinson, you're going to compete with the player collectors. 
Sure. Yeah, there's certainly that. I know when I first got into the hobby, to the organized hobby, going to conventions and stuff out here in Los Angeles in 72 and 73, there wasn't the premium on superstars that there is now. It was more about completion. And I think Tops just followed through with that. They would put on the popular players. But for the most part, I think they were just putting any players, usually from the first series, onto those salesman samples. So it... If you were there in 72, and I was there in, in, in that period too, it was almost un... Uh, not unseemly, but it just didn't seem proper to try to get somebody's superstars. There was some sense of democracy or something that all these big leaguers are, are worthy of respect and some have greater followings than other. And if you traded a Mickey Mantle for a, you might get two for one or something, but it wasn't right. anything like it is now. And that no, was later 70s, in the, the mid late 70s, that came on real strong. It was considered almost shallow if yep. that's the right word, that to be a superstar collector, what you really want to do is be a deep fan and a deep yep. collector. And you collect, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you collect sets. And then that all changed, I noticed, when I started selling off the collection, everybody was looking for a rookie Jim Rice. And that seemed to be the first time I really noticed a fixation with star collectors as opposed to set collectors. Yeah. But, okay, so you, so you had a collection. I had a collection like that. And when you complete one segment, you think, okay, what's next? Yeah. I actually, again, I was doing these almanacs and things like that. So I was looking for anything out there that needed to be cataloged and trying to get some sample cards. But you're actually trying to complete that set, I think. Are you trying to get one from each? Aren't there two 53 panels? There's one three-card panel that I know of. What I'm trying to do is get one panel each year? from each year. Okay. So Bowman issued them for two years. Topps issued them. Uh, Bowman issued them in 54 and 55. Topps issued them from 1952 to 1967. So that's the goal, one of each. Now, in, for the most part, there are three-card panels, but there are exceptions to that. Right. 50, 54 Bowman is a four-card panel. 56 Tops I have a, is a four-card or a three-card. I have a 1960 Tops. I have the three-card panel, and then I also have the eight-card panel. So there's some little variations on there, but basically I'm looking for one from each. Just like I look for one empty box from each set and one pack from each set. You know what I found, because I, I did a lot of that same stuff. Probably I, I was spread thin because I was doing all the sports, uh, Anthony. But what I found tough when I was looking for things like that were the penny packs. The nickel packs were easier than the penny packs. Yeah, this is true. And again, 65 penny was the last year the Topps issued penny. And that became the holy grail until a box surfaced and flooded the market. There's only one known 52 Topps penny pack. And I just sold it a couple of, I had it and I sold it a couple of years ago. I have never seen a 61 tops penny pack in 20 years of looking. And I only recently saw a wrapper. So that one's got to be pretty tough, but somebody has a box of them in their basement and they put them out on the market. Everything changes. It's all a matter of supply and demand, but yeah, generally pennies are tougher. I was a huge collector in, in the late fifties and early sixties and went to the store and bought cards. And if there had been penny packs, that would have been a game changer. I don't remember seeing penny packs in any of the places, and my buddies didn't unless they – but can you imagine a, a box of 120 individually wrapped penny cards? Crazy. Instead of 24 packs of five cards each or something like that for a nickel. But the legacy of that is that we have less cards with wax stains than we would if they were mostly hey, predominantly that's packs. That's the silver lining there. Yeah. And, uh, so why don't – again, if the – I just try to figure – so you think they quit doing it because – Tops was the only game in town, and they had a lot. By '67, they had a lot of brand equity. I think they owned the trading card market, and they were synonymous with it. Certainly, they were done with their lawsuit with Fleer. That was all settled. Maury Wills finally had a Tops card, and that was the last of it in '67. However, 
One of the things that I really love about Topps is their sense of history. And when they started bringing out the heritage sets in 2002, eventually they brought the salesman samples and ran those for 10 or 12 years. So they've continued with that. And that sort of gives a nod to the history of the salesman sample. Yeah, I don't, like I said, I'm wondering how many people, you know, one of the problems we had in the price guide, this is an audio podcast, and it'd be, be, this actually is a topic that would be much better for video, but people can go out and find images of those. But in our, in the, the price guides, the almanacs, it was just hard to put a price on them, hard to checklist them, hard to know where to put them. If you put them at the end of the set, which is the way you collected, you're saying, I want to remember the 54 tops. And so I want to have a set and I want to have a, a wrapper or a pack or a Everything. I yeah. want to have the, because that's your bent from your, your advertising photography, that this is the imagery. This is the, the big picture of that. This is the full collateral system that talks right. to uh, When Woody Gelman laid out the looks of it and the design of everything, he didn't just design the cards. He also designed the, the wrappers and the boxes, all the collateral material, the sell sheets, the salesman samples. And to me, that's the full experience of collecting the set. Did you know uh, Woody or did you know his son, Richard? No, Richard, I used to buy from a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I dealt with it. was with great, awesome. But basically, Woody Gelman, again, Cy Berger is, was awesome. But Woody Gelman gets an, ought to get an awful lot of the credit for the, I think, for the graphic aspect of Tops becoming an American, if not global, phenomenon. You know, I really appreciate serious collectors. And you are, Anthony. Thank you for uh, sharing your time and, and expertise about these salesman panels. I, I can't tell the listeners enough that this is a really difficult quest. All the things you're tackling, it's not hard to get a complete set if you have the money. You're talking about things that even if you have the money, it's still hard to complete. So uh, you're a true collector. My hat's off to you. You're, it's, if I weren't so busy, do, if I hadn't been so busy doing price guides, I, I probably would be, I would have been a serious collector like that because I just couldn't, I didn't have time to collect those things on a really aggressive basis back in the day. I think you did it. Your contribution to the hobby was obviously tremendous and made it a lot more enjoyable for a lot more people. It's just an honor to be on today with you and to meet you. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks, listeners. Uh, We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode that will uh, hopefully be almost as interesting as this one. So thanks, Anthony. Thanks, listeners. Back tomorrow. The